Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to Exceptional Women on Magic 106.7. I'm Sue Tab, and today's guest is Dr. Maisha Minter-Jordan, who is president and CEO of the Boston-based DentaQuest Partnership for Oral Health Advancement. They are a nonprofit organization working to transform the broken health care system and enable better health through oral health. Through grant-making, research, and care improvement initiatives, the DentaQuest partnership drives meaningful change at the local, state, and national levels and is affiliated with DentaQuest, a leading U.S. oral health enterprise with a mission to improve the oral health of all. Today, Dr. Minter Jordan joins us to talk about her work at the DentaQuest partnership and her work on the COVID-19 Health Inequities Task Force established by Boston Mayor Marty Walsh and with the new Commonwealth Racial Equity and Social Justice Fund. Welcome, Dr. Minter Jordan. Thank you so much for having me, Sue. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, we are excited to talk to you, and you have quite an impressive resume, but before I even dig into your current work, let's just talk a little bit about how you landed in Boston, sort of what brought you here to Massachusetts. Sure. So I came to Massachusetts primarily for the opportunity at the Demick Center to be the chief medical officer. And it was really the mission of the Demick Center, uh, the community that it serves, that drew me into the position because I really wanted to be in a place where I could uh, fulfill my passion of working with underserved communities. And the Demick Center has such a comprehensive array of programs and services that it immediately drew me in. And uh, before I knew it, we were packing up and heading to Massachusetts from Baltimore, Maryland. And is Baltimore where you grew up? No, I actually grew up in Long Island, New York. Ah. I went to Baltimore for my training in internal medicine. So, I mean, you have lots of professional accomplishments that we're going to talk about in a, in a moment. But you've also made it a priority, as you said, to take on a number of sort of local and statewide leadership opportunities including service on quite a few commissions and boards of directors. Talk about that for a moment. I, I want to um, I want to find out what kinds of results you've seen from that work and, and what you find most rewarding about that. Sure. I think uh, as initially as a community health center leader and now in my current position with the DentaQuest Partnership for Oral Health Advancement, it's really important to understand what's happening at the local and statewide level as it pertains to health care and as we think about health care transformation. 
So I've had the opportunity to work on a number of commissions um, that have focused on how we pay for health care, how we bring health care to underserved populations, how we think about program development. Um, from my time on the commission, one of the proud things, the Boston Public Health Commission, one of the things I'm most proud of was our ability to raise the age for buying cigarettes to 21. Oh, you were a part uh, so of that, that initiative. A, That's pretty yeah. impressive. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was really critically important. As a mother, I think it's important that we protect the health of our children. Ad- additionally, um, it was been really helpful to be on the board of the Boston Foundation and the work that we've done, not only more recently in the response to COVID, but more broadly in terms of thinking about access to transportation for underserved communities, helping to fund a number of various initiatives in underserved communities and supporting small businesses led by black and brown leaders. And then uh, more recently, the work that I've done on the mayor's task force for COVID-19 health inequities, I'm really excited to be part of that group of, of leaders who have really helped to look at the data and match the data to the allocation of resources to help um, communities in need get the resources that they need in terms of treatment and prevention for COVID-19. What kind of other leaders are on that panel or on that board? Um, What other industries are represented? From from the Mayor's Task Force? Yes. Uh, A number of, uh, so as an example, um, Linda Dorsina Forey from Suffolk Construction, but we know her um, previous to that as her role as a senator, state senator. Yes. Uh, there are other leaders, uh, Marie St. Fleur, who also has had an extensive role working on the state and city level. Um, Tanisha Sullivan, one of the leaders of the NAAD. Leader. Oh, we just she had Tanisha. We just it's, had yeah, Tanisha on the show. That's so funny. We had her on a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, she is absolutely amazing. Amazing. Um, Michael Curry, who is uh, the lead of the um the community, the Massachusetts Community Health Center, uh, the primary care association that leads all of the community health centers, the Massachusetts League of Community Health Centers. So there's a nice array of folks who are from the community, who are leaders in their own right, leaders in public health, um, that really are representative. Vanessa uh, Calon Rosado, who um, is from um, EBA, who um, also represents the Latinx community. So great representation of the diversity of Boston on that um, task force, and it's been a pleasure to work with all of them. So I know you have advanced degrees in both medicine and business. So you went from a medical-focused position um, at the Dimmick Center to one that is more business-focused now. What was that transition like? And tell us how important it is for those leading healthcare organizations to have a clinical background. So I think it's incredibly important to have a clinical background and to have served on the front lines when you think about making decisions that impact healthcare providers and patients. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a certain level of credibility that you gain um, from from doing that. In my when I initially started at Demic and we extended our evening hours and our weekend hours, it was important for me as a leader to participate in that work schedule, to understand what it meant for our providers and our staff, and to also understand that we were providing enhanced access to our patient population. I think on the other side of things, from a business uh, perspective, part of the reason why I went to business school following my residency uh, training was because I really needed to understand how decisions were made, Mm -hmm. how to create sustainable programs, how to think about funding, and you don't learn that in medical school, or at least at the time when I was there, you didn't learn anything about the business of medicine. And I think if you are looking to create or transform a healthcare system, it's important to understand both perspectives because you can't, without margin, there's no mission. 
Right. And so I think understanding both of those things is critically important to running a healthcare organization and to really fully participate and bring your credibility and expertise to those um, various tables where decisions are made that impact you know, hundreds of thousands of people. You had a 12-year run, very successful run, I might add, at the Dimmick Center. Um, talk about what inspired your move to DentaQuest. So I, I really loved my time at Dimmick. From the moment I walked in the door to the moment I left, I felt like every day I was waking up with purpose mm-hmm. and waking up um, with the knowledge that I worked with an incredible group of people who were incredibly dedicated to the communities that we serve. And as I advanced from chief medical officer to CEO, it gave me a broader platform um, to work with our governor and to work with our mayor on health care and a number of other health care leaders. Um, what I found that I wanted to do as the next part of my, in the next part of my career was to broaden that platform to a national one. And I really enjoyed the work that I did at Demick with the integration of behavioral health and primary care. And oral health is, is really the next part of that for me, of, of how we think holistically about health care, how we can advance comprehensive models. It has to be inclusive of every aspect of our body. And I think it's similarly, um, as we think about compare oral health to behavioral health, these are aspects that had been siloed for historically um, for a number of reasons, but as we think about what we need moving forward in terms of a comprehensive healthcare model, it has to be inclusive of all aspects of the body, and oral health has such an impact on a number of chronic health diseases. It has an impact on behavioral health. You really can't silo it out and treat a person effectively. And so the work that DentaQuest provided um, provides to you know, the country in terms of thinking holistically about oral health um, is something that was very attractive to me. And that national platform to be able to move these conversations forward, particularly as it pertains to underserved populations, was also what attracted me to the position. And what is it about the oral health system that, that needs to change? I know there are, there are lots of things, but primarily, what are some of the things that, that you're working on that, that need to change maybe more immediately? Well, I think there's a, a number of things. So first, we need to move towards value-based care, which really um, not only uh, allows for a different way of paying for care, but also has a focus on prevention. And I think we have, uh, for far too long, um, not had enough of a focus on prevention as it pertains to oral health. The other is we need to think about integrated models of care where we have primary care providers and oral health care providers working collaboratively. And we do that within the community health center setting. Mm -hmm. But more broadly, as we think about larger systems of care, we really need to um, connect these dots for our patients who are often feeling as if they have to go to multiple different uh, sites in order to achieve care or to achieve access to care different data points. We're not sharing medical information with dental information. And that can be quite dangerous for a patient who has chronic diseases or different uh, different types of medications that can impact one another. So we really need to have much more of a comprehensive approach to how we design systems, how we design reimbursing for care, and how we look at healthcare outcomes with the patient at the center of that and, and empowered by healthcare providers that are working together in concert to improve their health care. All of us, Dr. Minter Jordan, right now have to sort of look through the lens of the coronavirus pandemic and, and how that's um, mm-hmm. affecting all of industries and the challenges that it presents. And I'm sure there are many. Um, how is your organization uh, helping patients 
patients and dentists alike manage through it all? Yeah, it's, it's obviously incredibly complicated, particularly as we still are experiencing the pandemic. We had a number of dental practices closed um, that created major challenges for patients in terms of access. We've provided um, in support of our dentists um, millions of dollars in financial support for COVID-19 relief and recovery initiatives across the country, including helping dentists to care critical PPE. We've developed new free online training materials to help dentists understand infection control, COVID-19 testing, and teledentistry. And we have worked with um, the organization for uh, sepsis and asepsis prevention to uh, create guidelines for returning to the dental office, both for providers and more, and we will be producing a consumer-facing guidance um, very soon. Uh, so we're excited to, to do that work, but also um, to work more locally with the community care cooperative here in Massachusetts, which is a number of community health centers that we're working with to advance the expansion of teledentistry and related reimbursement changes. If you are just tuning in, you're listening to Exceptional Women on Magic 106.7. I'm Sue Tab, and today I am joined by Dr. Maisha Minter-Jordan, who has been talking about her work with the DentaQuest Partnership for Oral Health Advancement and the meaningful change they are driving at all levels. Uh, she's also working with the COVID-19 Health Inequities Task Force and with the Racial Equity and Social Justice Fund. Let's get back to our conversation. Uh, in a recent blog, Dr. Minter-Jordan, and you wrote that because of pre-existing and long-standing structural and economic barriers, communities of color have subsequently become hotspots for the coronavirus. Tell us a little bit about what factors contribute to these disparities. Sure. So there, there are a number of factors. Uh, first, in terms of access to the healthcare system, uh, access to testing, uh, and providing education and information in, in, in a multilingual um, in culturally competent manner have been some of the deficiencies that we've seen in terms of the initial approaches to COVID. What we've done with the mayor and the task force is to really redesign our approach and to look at the data to drive how we thought about um, allocation of resources and to provide additional support to those communities. What we find is that a number of black and brown communities uh, are the bedrock of the healthcare industry within Massachusetts, and those are the people that are on the front lines. And so they're they're putting themselves in harm's way every day going to work. Um, and there, are, as we think about some communities that have a number of frontline workers in the retail or restaurant industry, those industries, some of which were were closing, but some of which stayed open. We had people who needed to work and were going out every day with potential exposure to COVID-19. We also know that uh, blacks account, while blacks account for 7% of the state's population, um, we were experiencing 14% of COVID-19 cases and 14% of COVID-19-related hospitalizations. So we know that the people on the front lines are experiencing COVID in, in, in a much more um, impacted way. Same thing for Hispanics or Latin and people from Latinx um, ethnicities accounting for 12% of the population, but almost 30% of the cases and 15% of the hospitalizations. So we knew um, the mayor's task force that we needed to have different approaches, approaches within those communities that could provide, um, that we needed to provide access to testing. We need to provide access to, to food and other resources. Um, we also need to support the, the small businesses within those communities that were, that have been suffering as a result of COVID-19 and really leverage the community health centers as places where they could continue to get access to care 
and treatment for those who are suffering with COVID-19. Talk, too, about the connection. Uh, you're seeing that same sort of disparity on a national level with uh, in connection to oral health. Talk about that a little bit. Sure. Our research, research shows that more than 45 million Americans live in areas that do not have an adequate number of dentists to serve the local population. And we know that Americans in poverty are two and a half times as likely as those with higher incomes to have an unmet dental need due to lack of insurance. Black adults are 22% less likely than white adults to have had a routine dental visit in the past year and 68% more likely to have unmet dental needs. Latino adults are 52% more likely than white adults to report having difficulty doing their job very often or fairly often due to poor oral health. And nearly 4 in 10 black and Latino adults reside in one of the 14 states where Medicaid's adult dental benefits cover no services or emergency-only care. So when you layer on the impact of COVID-19 in terms of dental offices closing, only being open for emergency care, you see the impact of these disparities exacerbated in that context. And, and part of what we've tried to do is highlight those issues in the work and the research and advocacy work that we do um, with DentaQuest, as well as, as, as I mentioned earlier, um, allocate funding to help uh, our providers stay open and cr to create educational materials for communities in need as to how they can safely return to the dental office. I want to talk to you about um, your work even more recently. You joined 18 other black and brown corporate executives in uh, Massachusetts to establish the new Commonwealth Racial Equity and Social Justice Fund with a goal of raising $100 million to combat systemic racism. Uh, what are the focus areas for that new fund and, and how is that going? It's a lot of money. It is a lot of money, but one of the things that we said is that there we have we are trying to overcome 400 years of of racism and 400 years of inequities. And you know, I think this number uh, is is a drop in the bucket compared to what is is really needed. However, we know that we can create uh, incredible impact when we come together collaboratively um, for this goal of combating systemic racism. So we are focused on youth education and civic education, uh, criminal reform and policing reform, uh, reducing uh, health inequities, and empowerment of communities of color. Our focus is to highlight the best practices that are led by black and brown leaders in communities of color across the Commonwealth. Mm -hmm. We uh, have been successful in reaching our goal of $20 million to seed the fund. And we continue to work with our corporate leaders and corporate executives across the Commonwealth in order to reach our, our longer-term goal. Part of what we're committed to is that this needs to be a sustained effort, that we need everyone at the table, that there is no competition between other funds, either the Boston Mayor's Fund, who we are working very closely with Mayor Walsh on his fund, uh, we have met with the governor. We are looking forward to a meeting actually later today uh, with our attorney general um, because we want to ensure that we are broadening the table such that it is an inclusive table, that we are highlighting these inequities that we see throughout all of these important areas, and that we're working collaboratively to create sustained change. And we know that systems change is incremental in nature, and we know that it takes the focus and intent of many, and we are excited to be able to lead those efforts 
this is one of the first of its kind to have black and brown corporate leaders step up in this way. We're getting attention from other cities and other states uh, to understand what we're doing and how they can do similar initiatives. But we, the level of commitment from this original 19 is something that I have never experienced in before my career, but I'm excited to be part of it because we have a deep commitment to um, moving the needle on what is a public health crisis, racism. So we know that we need to do work on it. We know that we need to en engage our allies and engage others in, within the corporate community. And we know that we need to leverage these dollars along with other dollars to really create long systemic change. And that's why we call it the new commonwealth, because our intention is that we cannot do things the way that we used to. We need to do something new. We need to do something innovative. And that's the goal of this fund. And I'm really excited that both DentaQuest and the DentaQuest Partnership for Oral Health Advancement have stepped up with a initial, uh, a, 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 an initial grant of $2 million to the fund. And we've had an additional $500,000 from Delta Dental, uh, which shows our overarching commitment across the enterprise to combating systemic racism. I love, Dr. Minter Jordan, that you um, mentioned earlier in the, in, in the interview that you wake up with purpose. I feel like purpose and passion are what everybody has. And so the goal of 100 million is attainable because if you have purpose and passion, you said the level of commitment is like nothing you've ever seen. And I think that's where it comes from. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Let's, let's finish up. We only have a few minutes left, believe it or not. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about your thoughts on leadership. You were included in Boston Magazine's list, list of most influential Bostonians in 2018, again in 2020. What advice do you have for other female business leaders about how to develop and leverage their influence skills? Thank you for that question. And um, I think, you know, it's really important to seek uh, mentorship and to seek sponsorship, but also to trust your gut. I think part of what I've learned is um, make sure that I am educated in in the different initiatives that I'm that I'm part of, but also there's a certain innate strength that we have, and we really need to trust ourselves and trust our instincts. And we inform that instinct by these experiences. We inform them by working with our mentors and sponsors along the way. Um, but I, I think being able to center in on your gut and center in on your values. Um, my values are transparency, respect, accountability, and communication, and I use those values to guide my work, to guide my thinking in everything that I do, and I think that's an important aspect of being a leader is knowing what drives you, mm -hmm. um, understanding your own values, and then seeking the information that you need to make informed decisions. How do you stay on track, you know, it, 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 it's a lot of, you know, you, you have so, I want to ask too, before I wrap up, you said you're a mom. How do you balance all of this, uh, your professional work, the work on all of these boards? Um, it's amazing. How do you balance it all? You know, I try to uh, make sure that I spend the time that I need with my daughters, but they, I also make sure that they understand what I'm doing in my work and, and, and why I do it so that it doesn't feel to them that I'm completely pulled away and not focused on them and their growth and their development. And so we have really great conversations about the work that I do, about where my passion comes from, and I try to instill those same ideas in them to find what you're passionate about 
and to have and to be inclusive as to how you manage your life. But I also try to take out time for myself. I'm, I'm, I'm a big love yoga, big practitioner of yoga. I have an amazing husband that helps to support me when I, I, I don't have the time to be there with my daughters. Mm-hmm. But I also carve out that time and try to protect my family time on the weekends and in the evenings. Our meals are together every night. Um, and I think that communication is key. But it, there are there are a lot of things happening right now in my life, but I'm grateful to have the support of my family, um, my husband and children, as I pursue all of these efforts. And, and most importantly, they understand why. You set the bar high, I'll tell you that. What a wonderful role model you are to your daughters. That's amazing. Um, we are out of time, but I want to thank you, Dr. Maisha Minter-Jordan, for sharing your thoughts with us today. We're grateful for your professional accomplishments, which serve as inspiration to other female business leaders. But we are also quite thankful for your tireless work and efforts to eliminate racial inequality. You are truly exceptional, and we thank you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Exceptional Women on Magic 106.7. It is our honor and privilege to shine a light on the activators and to provide a platform for people who are out creating meaningful change in our communities. Thank you for paying attention and for helping us create engaging programming. We'd love to hear from you if you know someone who is making a difference. Just email us or send us a message on our Magic Facebook page. I'm Sue Tab, and along with my co-host and producer, Kendra Petroni, we'd like to invite you to join us every Sunday morning at 7.30 for an another edition of Exceptional Women. Have a great day, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.